Amen, amen. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. This morning we want to look at verses 32. Excuse me, verses 32 through 39. And we are continuing our theme that Jesus continues on persecution. And I feel as though I have to do double duty this morning because... This is a passage that I think has often, if I can say it this way, been misunderstood. Uh, It has taken a a passage that is meant to uh, teach something, and it's been used to teach something else. And I think it's one of those passages, there are several, that uh, when preached in a certain way, they they really cause more harm than they do good. Uh, They turn uh, something that is a law that we could never fulfill into something that is the litmus test for whether or not we are actually Christians. And that, that is something that destroys our assurance of our salvation, that we are saved by faith in Christ. We're trusting Christ uh, to be our Savior. He's the one who died on the cross, paid the full penalty for our sins. He's the one who exhausted the wrath of God to our sins. And we're saved by trusting in His work. And so what this passage is often used is is in relation to salvation and not sanctification. And, And so I want to go ahead and lay out the difference there because if we make it about salvation, then really what we're saying is we save ourselves. Uh, a salvation depends on our response to Jesus, how faithful our response is, how consistent our response is. And yet, if we understand it that way, then none of us in this room can have any assurance that we are, in fact, saved. So we're talking about sanctification, and we're talking about following Jesus, right? These are disciples who are being talked to here. And what Jesus is trying to teach them is about the priorities of a disciple, especially in the face of persecution. And so Jesus fully understands, and I think we need to understand too, that when we talk about acknowledging Jesus before others, as we're going to see, as we talk about taking up a cross, not loving father or mother more than me, I think we, will, we all will say that we don't meet any of these commands fully. And so we need Christ We need Christ to be our salvation. We need his death, burial, and resurrection and his righteousness credited to us. And then once we understand that, we begin to see what Jesus is saying here. Not so much about salvation, but as what as a disciple should be, what should we be working towards as having Christ as our priority? Okay, so let's read the text and see what Jesus says. He says in verse 32, therefore... Everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Let's pray together. Father, open our hearts. Uh, give us wisdom to discern the, the truth of your word and what it is you're saying to us. We thank you for this, this miracle, this, this writing of God, this book of God that is given to us to instruct us, to comfort us, to challenge us, but to point us to Christ in all things. We pray that we would see you, Jesus, this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we know Jesus is continuing his theme of persecution by the word therefore, or so, in your translation. He's saying, in light of what he has just said, it's the same word that's in verse 26, that Jesus is drawing a conclusion. He's furthering his argument, as it were. And remember last week he talked about, or, and we talked about, about, trusting God in the midst of persecution and trusting the Father's protection because of Christ's perfection. And the very last thing that he says is, don't worry you don't, or, you know, don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So we have this baseline of God's protection and provision for us that we trust him. And therefore, now notice, when we, when we think about this, everyone who will acknowledge me, what it's tied to is, do you know the character of this God that Jesus has just, this father that Jesus has just spoke about? He says, you're Father cares for them. Don't be afraid. And if you really know him, if you really understand that, therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. Why? That's the real question. Why? Because they get it. They trust. They know, right? And so here's this connection that Jesus is making, that if you really knew this Father you would know and be willing to acknowledge him. And the word for acknowledge is the word that we use in several places that is translated to confess. But this is a word that's used in legal settings to say, I identify with this person. I have signed up on their team. It's, it's one of those things, the exact opposite of this is in the story of Peter, right? When Peter is following Jesus and they say, hey, weren't you with that man? Don't you identify with that man? Weren't you one of his companions, right? Do you acknowledge him? And what does Peter say? I've never met the man. That's the type of acknowledgement we're talking about here. And Jesus is talking in the face of persecution. There is a sense in which we have to be willing to identify with him. That there is a time and place where the line has to be drawn in the sand. All other consequences be thrown out. And all it boils down to is do I identify with Christ and no one else? And so what Jesus says is there is what it really boils down to. Everything that he's been saying is do we identify with Christ? Is he first? Is he the one whom we will place everything on? All our faith, all our hope, our hope of eternal life, our hope of salvation, forgiveness of sins. Is he the one? And Jesus says, everyone who acknowledges me before others, in turn, the Greek is really specific. There's a relationship here. Everyone who does that, in turn, likewise, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. So there is a sense in which Jesus ties salvation exclusively to himself there's only one person 
who we can be acknowledged by before the Father and it lead to our salvation. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He's the only one. But the flip side of that, if you look in verse 33, is but whoever denies me before others. Now notice, before others, before others, in both verses, this is talking about this trial, this persecution. You remember Jesus said, they'll bring you before the courts and they'll, they'll beat you and they'll bring you before kings and, and leaders. He says, if you deny or acknowledge me before others, and then if you deny me before others or before men, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. Now, let's, let's, let's pause here, okay? What Jesus is not saying here is that if you live, if you are a believer and you live a solid, I mean, just Christian life, you know, I'm not talking about one of those people that, you know, at the end they walk away from the, I mean, like, think about the person that you were 99.9% sure was a Christian, right? And then they deny Jesus one time. What Jesus is not saying is, that's it. You denied me, we're done. It's, it's not like a permanent breakup. Jesus isn't saying if you deny him one time, then the rest of your life, let's say you become a Christian and then a week later you undergo persecution and you deny him because of persecution. Is the rest of your life now you're just on the waiting list to when you get to, to judgment day and you're just kind of like, is that what Jesus is saying? Well, no. What it has to do is, is, is ultimate. What is, what is the finality? What is the end all be all? If the sum of your life could be characterized, if, if at the, the, the most important point, your life is a rejection of him, Jesus says, I will reject you. But at, at the core of your life, even at the end of your life, if you've rejected him your whole life, right? Let's flip it around. If you've rejected him your whole life and then on your deathbed, you genuinely place your faith in Christ for salvation, do you get to judgment day and Jesus says, one, you know, I know you did that and I know that's what you're, but you know, you did deny me that one time in sixth grade. So we, we have to understand that what Jesus is not talking about is just a one time thing, but, but the, the character of your life. What would be the label that is stamped on your life? And especially when it comes to persecution. So, when we think about this acknowledging Jesus, identifying him, we see that he sets, a very, he sets the baseline as believers need to first and foremost identify with Christ. He is to be first. He is to be before all things. He is to have first place in our life. But notice, he says, everyone who acknowledges me and everyone who denies me there's not a single person in this room who hasn't denied him before. You were silent when you were prompted to speak. You avoided consequences by your silence. It might have been a soft persecution. Not like a hard persecution where, you know, they're going to drag you into the city and beat you and kill you. But a soft, you might not get a promotion. Or you might not uh, have the friends that you would have. We've all denied him at some point in our lives. And so if we're not careful, we might turn this acknowledging into the litmus test of, am I saved? You know, if, if, I, if I go my whole Christian life without ever 
acknowledging him, but then what we're really doing is we're saved by our faithfulness. We're saved by our consistency. We're saved by our perfection in acknowledging Jesus, but that's not what the Bible says we're saved by, is it? We're saved by Christ's faithfulness. We're saved by him acknowledging us first, right? Ephesians 1, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Our only hope is not that we consistently acknowledge Jesus, but that Jesus chose us and acknowledges us and gave his life for us. But that does not mean that following our salvation, that we are not to put Christ above everybody else. And we see this because Jesus says in verse 34 that following him, being committed to the spread of the gospel, has very concrete applications. Look at verse 34. If we put Jesus first, he says, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, right? What does a sword do? What's the primary function of a sword? It's to cut things in half, right? Whether it's a dude's head or a pumpkin, whatever, right? That's what a sword does. Jesus uses this picture. He says, I came not to bring peace, but a sword, When we commit to following Jesus, it brings division. It separates us from those who we might think are more naturally related to us. Notice in verse 35, he says, I did not come to bring a sword, but I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against his mother. The relationships here, they're so close. They're blood bonds and they're legal bonds. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. If you've ever been a Christian and you've lived in a house with someone who wasn't, you might know exactly what that sounds like, what that looks like, what that feels like. The, the enemy will be the members of your own household. So Jesus says that this, this alignment, this acknowledging, this identifying goes beyond any other bond that exists here on earth. And one of the ways it's often put, and I think it's a good way to put it, is how many of you have siblings? Well, I know some of you have, many people have siblings. Okay. If you are a believer and your sibling is not, you have a closer bond with a Christian in the Middle East than you do with your own brother. The bond that is shared between believers when we put Christ first exceeds all other bonds. Jesus is to come first before our family, right? Father, mother, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, the members of our own household, which is why Jesus says what he says in verse 37. Look at what it says. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so what Jesus is saying is in comparison to the way you should respond to me, if you love them, if you're willing to put them before me, if you're willing to uh, let them be the final decision, the final factor in your decision and not me, Jesus says you're not worthy of following me. You're not worthy of me. You don't meet the standard that is expected. 
And so the reality we think about this is we, we've all done it. We've, we've put our children first. This often shows up in we put our children first because we're willing to, to do other children's activities besides making sure that our children are in church. Now, I know some of you are here and you have your children in church. I know I'm preaching to the choir. But it, it, it needs to be said that there is often this, this pull. You know, my, my kid needs to become the next pro baseball player, the next pro soccer player, the next pro football player. Uh, you know, I want to make sure my kid gets this advantage and that advantage. And you can look up the statistics on how likely it is that your child will be a professional sports player. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but it's highly unlikely. But there's a 100% chance that they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for what they did with the gospel. What they did with Jesus. And so we may say that we, we, we don't love our children more than Jesus and yet our actions might betray that statement. We'll let uh, a love for a father or mother or a child. Now, we'll, we will let that love dissuade us or keep us. We, we will disobey something that God has told us to do because of that. Now, I'm not saying, now, I just want to be clear here because I, I don't like when, when things are assumed about what I'm saying. I'm not saying that I know we have people who go out of town to care for loved ones. You have uh, moms and dads that are elderly and they need help. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about this kind of, when we, we know it, it's one of those things where we know it when we see it. When we're putting family above Christ. Okay? So I want to throw that disclaimer out there. I'm not saying that, you know, when you miss church to go take care of a sick parent, that you're choosing your parent over Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But you get what Jesus is saying, right? If we love, if we love our children and we love our family more than we love Jesus, something's wrong. We've gotten inverted uh, our priorities. And so the point is, is that what is, what is the right priorities? And then the comparison. Notice he says, if you love them more than me. Sometimes we think of it as like it's a, this bit of a difference, right? Like either, the, either it's Jesus and our parents, but sometimes we flip it, right? Like it's just, it's just a little turn. And yet Jesus is saying the difference is, is greater than my arms can, you know, can show. And that when we invert those, that's where the problem lies. But again, every single one of us have done it. And so if this becomes a litmus test for our salvation, then we're all doomed. Every single one of us. So this is about sanctification. Are we growing? Are we being stretched into putting Jesus first? Are we allowing Jesus to stretch our priorities, to stretch us out of where we're comfortable where we're willing to put him first. So Jesus is to be first in all things. He is to be first above family. But then when we get to verses 38 and 39, in the context of persecution, Jesus says he is to be first even over our own life. Look at verse 38. But whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. 
So Jesus has set the bar again in saying that whoever doesn't take up his cross. Now, a lot of times I'll hear this say, I've heard people preach on this passage and they'll say, you know, that, that the cross, and, and let me I say I agree with this. The cross was a horrific thing. It was absolutely horrific. If you do any study on what happens in a crucifixion, it's absolutely grueling. It is one of the most cruel forms of punishment devised by humanity. Not just cruel because of the pain, but cruel because it is devised in such a way to prolong as painfully as possible it is designed to make as slow and painful a death as possible. There are other ways that hurt more, but they're quick, right? <laughs> they might hurt more, but it's over quick. Crucifixion was insanely painful, but also excruciatingly long. If you know anything about a crucifixion, you, you were crucified, you were nailed between the wrists, right? Not really the hands, I know that's, I know, but really on the wrists, you would kind of go between the bones and that's where they would hang you like a, you know, like a painting. And you would be nailed in the feet to keep you there. And a lot of you, you think the pain is what kills you or the blood loss, but that's not really it. It's basically a slow suffocation. So what you have to do is your feet are nailed, you're there hanging and you start to slouch, right? And you, you start to not be able to catch your breath and you can't breathe. And the only way to get your lungs to expand and to catch a breath is you have to, the nail in your feet, you have to push up on that to allow your diaphragm to expand and do what it does and for your lungs to fill with air. And then you slowly start to sink. My arm's are already getting tired just doing this, right? But imagine you're holding your body weight up and you're just slowly, you, you just... You, that's what crucifixion was. So it is a horrendous act. And yet Jesus says, whoever doesn't take up his cross. Now, there's no, we don't really know if the disciples understood at this point exactly that Jesus is going to go to a cross, that he is going to be crucified. And, you know, th they were a little bit slow on the uptake, right? We read that in the Gospels. But the, the point is still the same. He says, whoever doesn't take up his cross... To take up your cross is to take up a willing death. But the cross wasn't just about the pain. It wasn't just about the, the torture. It was about the shame. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. And so Jesus is not just saying that you're willing to lose your life, but that you're willing to take up this instrument of mockery, this instrument of ridicule, this instrument of, of public shame and follow him. So Jesus lays out the terms really clearly. He says, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But then he goes on in verse 39. And he gives his general principle. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. The promise that we have if we take up our cross, if we're willing to lose our life, if we're willing to be shamed, if we're willing to suffer because of Jesus, if we're willing to lose our life, that's when we find it. But if we, if we cave... If we're not willing, if we try to save our own life, Jesus says, we lose it, right? 
Again, I want to hammer this home. In other passages, Jesus uses, in in, uh, parallel passages, Jesus says, whoever does not take up his cross daily, right? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. You know what that means? None of us are worthy of him. And so Jesus is showing us exactly how much we need him. We don't always acknowledge him. Sometimes we put other things first. And for some of us, we're willing to save our own life if we can do it by rejecting him or if we don't take up our own cross and follow him. But the promise is, is that if because of Christ, if we are willing to lose our... You see that, right? Anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. There are so many things that people are willing to lose their life for. They're willing to lose their life for their country. They're willing to lose their life for a political cause. They're willing to lose their life to make money. And that there's only one promise that exists that if we lose our life because of it, we actually find it. And that's what Jesus has been referring to this whole time. That when we come to faith in Christ, we are now made worthy. And because we're made worthy and because we're accepted and adopted, because we're declared righteous because of Christ... Now, he's the one who fulfilled all of these. He is the one who was faithful. He is the one who put God in the right place. He is the one who willingly took up a cross. So we trust him. We believe on him for salvation. But that also means that now we have a new priority. We have a new love. We have a new affection. We have a new father. And we know him now as the father who takes care of us and values us worth more. I want to point something out to you. Notice what Matthew does here. It might be a little bit confusing, but I think we can, we can make sense of it. He says in verse 31, you are worth more than many sparrows, right? And we might, you know, praise God. You know, Jesus loves me. He, he, I'm worth more than, than, than a bird. He loves me. And then what's the words that we see in verses 32? He says, you're worth more. And then he says, if you don't do this, you're not worthy. So which one is it? Are we worthy or are we not? And the reality is we're not worthy. The Bible tells us that God is perfect and righteous and just. And he demands perfection. But we are not perfect. We are sinners We choose sin, we're born in sin, we love our sin, we crave our sin, we cling to our sin, and unless God does a work in us to rebirth us, to recreate us, unless we are born again by the Spirit and given faith to believe and a new heart of flesh, we never would turn to Christ. And yet that's what he does. And so we see this about being worthy. And what I want you to see is that you're not worthy, but in Christ you are made worthy. Such that. Everyone who acknowledges me, I will acknowledge before the Father. 
You can't do that on your own. And so God has done it for you. God has made it through Christ such that we can read these verses and know that when that great day comes, when that day comes, our hope is not, did I always acknowledge? Our hope is not, did I always take up my cross? Our hope is not, was I perfect? Was I perfect? Was I perfect? Our hope is Christ was perfect for me. And because he was perfect for me, when we stand before God, he will acknowledge us before the Father in heaven. Jesus is the one who takes what is impossible and makes it possible. So any hope that we have is not of our own doing, but of Christ. So as we think about this persecution, and we're coming to the close of this section on persecution. What did we sing about? There's a reason we sang a song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Persecution, when, we, when, when the gospel is rightly understood, uh, who we are as sinners, what Christ has done for us, what the Spirit has done in us, and what God will bring us to, that He will hold us fast. That persecution may come, but if we are believers in Christ, if God has done that work, He is not a weak God that He will not bring it to completion. So let's put it as simple as possible. Your hope in persecution is not you, it's Christ. In every possible, conceivable way, Christ is our hope. And if Christ is our hope in persecution... Christ ought to be our hope for every single day. Whatever we face, whatever comes, whether it's severe persecution or not, Jesus Christ is our hope. So I don't know whether you're enduring persecution or not, but what I do know is we're all looking for hope. We're looking for a hope that one day when we stand before God, we will have an assurance. We want assurance today. We want hope that no matter what comes, it will not be useless. It will not be in vain. It will not be wasted. We need hope that as crazy as the world gets, no matter how much they hate us, no matter how much they seek us, no matter how much they seek to destroy us, to ruin us, to burn us, to kill us, to rob us, whatever. If our hope for salvation is how well we fare under those circumstances. I, I don't know about you, I lose all hope. Don't trust yourself. Trust Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder that though persecution comes, it will come and should be expected. Lord, we also know, God, that you will hold us fast. Your arm is not weak to save, such that we could undo that great and gracious work that you've done in our hearts. And Lord, the only thing that we, uh, as Spurgeon said, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary. And Lord, it's, it's a work 
God, by which we trust Christ. And if it's the work, if salvation is trust in Christ, so is our sanctification. That we trust Christ when we fail to acknowledge, when we fail to take up our cross. We know and are rest assured that He took up the cross for our failures. He took up the cross for our sins. And so that when persecution comes, God, we can be confident because of Christ. Lord, whatever areas where where someone is struggling to trust you, God, I pray for the grace, God, that they would trust you more. Lord, I pray that we would not forget where we were before Christ, where we are now in Christ. And Lord, that as believers, as blood-bought, spirit-renewed believers, God, we can be confident that you will complete that work you began in us in Christ Jesus, as Paul says. It's in his name and your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.